Hey everybody, it's Father Chris Culpepper, the rector here at Christ the Redeemer Anglican Church in Fort Worth, Texas, and welcome back to another week of 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. This week we are taking a look at the Kingdom Era, and as is our custom and habit, we'll do a review of last week and then pause to allow you to do your study, and then I'll come back with a summary and some supplementary comments. So let's go ahead and begin. Last week we explored the Judges Era, and we talked about how the judges ruled over the Israelites in the Promised Land, the land of Israel. And we saw how a pattern emerged under their rule. Um, in short, the pattern involved three basic elements, sin, discipline, and deliverance. And we saw how that pattern is emblematic of the bigger picture in God's plan, the one that we've been talking about all along, which is creation, fall, judgment, mercy, and new creation, so that sin discipline and deliverance is that big picture in a very small nutshell, but that's the pattern that emerged under the era of the judges. Let's remember also that we're now in the historical books of Scripture, and specifically in the Old Testament, and obviously within the history of Israel, we're now making another significant transition. That is the transition from the somewhat charismatic and seemingly spontaneous leadership of the judges to the more structured and, and systematic leadership and transition from one king to another. But let's make no mistake, this transition is not without its troubles and trials, for not only will we find a long line of corruption under the leadership of the kings, but underneath it all, we will also see the corruption of the people by their motive and even asking for a king in the first place. So let's take a step back. Let's recall that the earlier witness of Scripture and uh, its suggestion that God is actually pleased that kings might come from the loins of Abraham. And in saying that, I'll point us to the covenant that God makes with Abraham in Genesis 17, 16, where it's written, quote, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, says the Lord. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. That's part of the covenant declaration between God and Abraham. So it would not seem that God is displeased with the idea of a kingship itself per se. Uh, in fact, we talk about Jesus as King of Kings and, and Lord of Lords. So God firmly implants one way or another the idea of kingship in our mind. The question is whether we're talking about the right king or not. Um, but here's the, uh, here's the um, struggle that, that shows up in the text, 1 Samuel 8. Uh, verses 4 and 5, and it illustrates the issue when it says this. It says that the elders of Israel came to the prophet Samuel at his home, and they tell Samuel to appoint a king to judge Israel like all the nations, and that's the critical idea. So then Samuel takes this matter to the Lord, and in prayer, in prayer, and the Lord replies to him, he says, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me as king over them. One of the few places in scripture that will actually see God telling uh, someone to obey the voice of the people and not his voice. So there's an interesting little um, dynamic going on in there, right? He's telling Samuel to obey the voice of the people because he's setting up something uh, for them to see. And here's what he's setting up. God is now using Samuel to warn the people about the ways in which earthly kings would rule. If you read the verses right after those verses, you see the warnings that God issues about earthly kings and the ways that they'll rule. But nevertheless, we also see the people of Israel persist in their perverted request, and ultimately God grants it. 
I think the thing we would point to here is the concern that God always has for the condition of our hearts. And I'll articulate that this way in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. It says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, and they give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Yet, the Lord says, You have done foolishly in relying on earthly kings to deliver you. So from now on, you will have wars. And with that provocative thought in mind, we'll pause to allow you to do your lesson, and I'll return with a summary and some supplemental teaching. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. I hope you enjoyed working through your lesson in the era of the king. So we'll start our summary as we always do with the storyline, and the place we are in the story says this. David, the greatest king in the new kingdom, is followed by a succession of mostly unrighteous kings, and God eventually judges Israel for her sins, sending her into exile. Can you see the pattern again? Creation, fall, judgment. Eventually we'll see mercy and new creation, but that's later in the story. So let's talk about the sections. The first section that you worked your way through was... Um, the subtitle was The United Kingdom, A New Monarchy, and the idea in the United Kingdom is that God allows the prophet Samuel to anoint Saul as Israel's first king, yet we quickly see that Saul himself is a bit of an unrighteous king, and so the cycle of corruption has already begun, even in the very first king. That leads us to the second part, the divided kingdom, a civil war. And even though David succeeds Saul and becomes the exemplary king over Israel, and, and even more than that, and we'll talk about that in a minute, yet even David sins. We know his infamous sin with Bathsheba, and chaos is unleashed in his household and, by extension, in the land of Israel. But then we find David's son Solomon is raised up himself to succeed David as the next king, and Solomon raises Israel itself to new heights. But Solomon, too, sins. The Bible says King Solomon loved many foreign women. It was part of his downfall. And a civil war erupts after his death, which ultimately divides the kingdom. So now we talk about the divided kingdom. First, the northern kingdom, which is generally looked at as the unrighteous kingdom. The northern kingdom, which, interestingly enough, is actually called Israel. It becomes almost immediately unrighteous and mostly continues that way for... 250 years. Think about that in terms of how old the United States is, right? So that's about how long the northern kingdom was unrighteous until it was finally destroyed by Assyria. Then we can talk about the southern king kingdom, which is at least identified as an inconsistent kingdom. Uh, the southern kingdom is called Judah, and it's not without its problems. Ultimately, it's a, it ends up getting dragged off into exile in the land of Babylon, which sets us up for the next section that we'll do. So we'll suspend that there, and we'll do a little bit of supplementary teaching and, and make some observations. So on, on the one hand, we continue to see this rancor of disobedience. This pattern from judges continues sin, discipline, and deliverance, which uh, culminates at this time period in, in destruction and the exile. We haven't yet seen deliverance. Really what we're seeing now is the pattern of sin and and discipline, and it's ultimately in the exile era that we'll begin to see how God delivers the Israelites. But we also see some very major events unfolding that now begin to sow the seeds for what we'll talk about soon as messianic expectation. 
The first thing is that through King David, we see God's covenant plans and his promises continue to unfold. If you've never read 2 Samuel chapter 7, I really encourage you to read that chapter. It is one of the most beautiful episodes in Scripture in terms of God's continued love for his people through manifesting his promises. So I'll give you a little bit of a teaser. Part of that passage, God says, My steadfast love will not depart from David as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure and forever before me. And you can read the rest for yourself. The other significant thing that we see is the establishment of the temple in Jerusalem. I've had the privilege of being in the Holy Land twice now and just seeing that majestic area in which the temple used to be. The temple is significant for several reasons. If you know your Old Testament history, it is the place where God himself dwells. It is the temple that will make the Israelites great upon, among the nations for the reason that the God of all gods lives there. And it's also the temple where the sacrificial system will be secured. We know a little bit of this story, the Day of Atonement that we know is Yom Kippur. The priest would enter into the temple and there he will make sacrificial offerings to God for the satisfaction of sin. But we also know that he'll have to do it year after year and decade after decade and generation after generation for this reason. The reason that the priest and the Israelites all realize in their own hearts, they know that the animals are an insufficient sacrifice before the eyes of God. And they know that the priests are incompetent mediators between mankind and God. Who then, as Paul says, will deliver us from this body of death. So stay tuned as the story continues to unfold. Thank you for joining us and God bless you in your day and in your week.